is an obsessive collector of stamps, which as many of you will know is quite a nerdy recreation. I was most interested in the sort of older stamps. I guess they gave a glimpse into a world that had by then passed on. Now back in the day, and the definition of back in the day is pre-World War II, people forging stamps was quite an issue. So you can imagine my nine-year-old delight when I realised that I had a 19th century forged stamp in my collection that I'd stumbled across somewhere. Now, the world's post offices were very aware of this problem. And one of the ways that they tried to protect their income was to put watermarks on the backs of stamps. So when you held the stamp up to light, you might see a queen's head, or you might see something like that on the right there, New Zealand with a star. And during the manufacturing process, when it was still wet, the paper had been thinned, I don't know how the heck they did this, leaving it with sort of an embossed pattern. And the idea was that if you were going to forge a stamp, it was going to be harder and more expensive for you to do it. Now likewise, all New Zealand's paper money used to have a watermark of the Queen's head. We still have a small one there on the, um, the right of Kate Shepherd, but we've got this raft of security measures now. There's the framed window with the embossed number, there's uh, raised uh, printed ink, there's uh, um, the, window, the window at the bottom left, there's all sorts of stuff. Now, I thought while we're on the subject of banknotes, um, it might be appropriate <laughs> to take a moment to um, remember the $50 note that gave its life here a few weeks ago. I burned it for the faith. It died for a noble cause, I think. The strengthening of the saints. Too soon? Yeah, perhaps. Well, passports have these kinds of protections as well. Um, but facial recognition software now makes it, I don't know how the heck you would forge a passport these days. The game, the, the, what they're trying to do is to, to preserve and detect authenticity, making sure that the document, the stamp, uh, the banknote, whatever, is real and valid. Now, like many of you, I got a vaccination passport a while back, which I would show when I went into a cafe or a restaurant. And most of them are quite happy just to see it and pass you by. But some had a sort of an app on their phone and they would detect it to see if it was a forgery. And I understand that was a real thing. I heard about this guy whose party trick was getting vaccinated for other people who didn't want to get vaccinated. He got jabbed a number of times. Well, in the States, the body that looks after uh, the counterfeiting, uh, the crime of counterfeiting US currency is the US Secret Service. And when they train their people, they spend very, very little time looking at the forgeries. What they do is they study the real thing in an obsessively detailed way so that when they come across a forgery, they can tell it by comparison. Now you may be sitting there asking, why am I going on about all of this? And if you're at home, you'd be able to pause me, as Phil suggested, and go out. But right now, you're a captive audience, so tough luck. Well, the answer to my question is, the New Testament, our Bible, 
is full of warnings about false teachers that were pushing various off-key versions of the faith. Uh, we have the Judaizers, who sort of wanted to make uh, Christianity into this little polyp of Judaism, so that you would, yes, you would worship Jesus, but you would, um, if you're a man, be circumcised, and you would obey all the ceremonial and food laws as if you're a good, faithful Jew. Later, they had the Gnostics, and the Gnostics taught that there was this, well, you're doing really well in the faith, but actually, you need to know this secret stuff now. And until you know that secret stuff, you're not really going to mature. Over the next few centuries, there were the Montanists, who taught that the God of the Old Testament, well, that's not the same as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God of the Old Testament is this Jewish tribal deity. You don't really worry about the Old Testament. And then there were adoptionists, who taught that Jesus became the Son of God at his baptism up until that point, he was a normal Joe. There were Arians who thought that Jesus was an angel, so he wasn't fully God, nor fully human. There were Docetists who taught that Jesus was God with skin on. And there are many, many more. But time and again through the New Testament, Paul calls his errant congregations back to the simple gospel that he had taught and that he had suffered for. And the most ancient statement of that gospel that we have is from 1 Corinthians 15. Now this chapter was written to counter a number of false ideas about resurrection that were out there. One of which was that everybody had already been resurrected, you just haven't noticed it. And the other was, well, resurrection is not really that important. Listen to this. Now I should remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have died. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to someone untimely born, he appealed, appeared also to me. Could we read verses 3 and 4 together? For I handed on to you, as of first importance, what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Luke records Peter's sermon. I guess the first sermon that a Christian preacher had done on the day of that first day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And it says this, You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, 
This man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law, but God raised him up, having freed him from death. Paul had received this gospel, and so had the Corinthian church. And it's the same gospel that Peter preached on that first day of Pentecost. For all Paul's religious genius, and he very clearly was, he did not dream it up. He received it from those first apostles, that ragtag, teenage, mostly fishermen group of young guys that hung around with Jesus. No religious scholars there. True, Paul explained it, and he explored its implications for our lives, which is a legitimate process, which is still going on today. It's, I guess, one definition of my role here on a Sunday morning. He worked hard to communicate it to various different audiences, which is both necessary and valid. He, like us, is a person of God's salvation, a person of God's story, the people that God is calling to himself. So it's revealed. We make our stand on this gospel. Now if we are still dead in our sins, then we have nothing much to offer a broken world, and we should all just pack up now and go home, quite frankly. Through the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, when you read it, Paul's very clear. If Jesus hasn't risen, if this is all a lot of bunk, then we are above all people to be pitied. Pitied, that's strong language. I once saw a cartoon which said, Easter is cancelled, they found the body. Quite right. Where are you supposed to follow a deluded and deceased saviour to who's still in the ground? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the whole thing's pointless. And what's more, it's, a lie. The next interesting phrase for me is being saved. It's not looking back at time saying, I was saved back then. It's being saved. If you're a grammar student, it's present continuous. Salvation is an ongoing thing. It began when you first confessed Jesus as Lord and Saviour, but it's still ongoing now, and it will be ongoing the side of the grave, and it will get to its culmination on Judgment Day when you stand before God the Father. We are all works in progress, whether we are 10, whether we are in a onesie, whether we are 94, or somewhere in between, dressed in other clothing. This pride. The last phrase I want to seize on is hold firmly. Cling, if you will. It talks about perseverance. You talk to any older Christian, and I appreciate if you're 94, that could be a challenge, and they will have stories of losing friends, of burying their parents and other precious people, of broken relationships, of illness, disability, disappointments, pain. 
Now, when things are going well and you're skipping across the mountaintops, it's not such a deal. But you have to hold firmly when you're in the valley of the shadow of death and you're on your knees crawling. And hope, well, hope's this glimmer of light somewhere up ahead. But this is the lot of Christians in life. We receive, we stand on, we are being saved. We hold firmly to the gospel that, the gospel that what? The gospel that I got you to read out, that Jesus died, buried, and was raised to, raised to life. Now, as I've looked back on my Christian walk, which is now um, coming up to 40 years, goodness, the gospel that was preached to me in the 1980s was almost entirely a gospel of the cross, based on verse 3. If resurrection was mentioned, it was sort of like, well, that's the stamp that says paid in full. Because if you had still dead in your sins, if Jesus was still working, then he wouldn't have been risen, risen again yet. The gospel proclaimed here in its first written record is subtly different from the gospel of the cross that I received. And I dare say it's slightly different from the one that many of you got as well. If the gospel of the cross was scanned by an app or had its watermark closely inspected, I don't think it would quite pass muster. The problem with the gospel of the cross, without much emphasis on the resurrection, is that it tends to reduce the faith to a transaction. We say sorry and get forgiven. Deal done. It's a trade. And I remember being told by um, apparently wise Christian people, look, you are saved. There is nothing that you can do that will separate you from God now. Discipleship is a lifestyle choice because once saved, always saved. Just repent and trust the Lord and everything will be fine for you when the truth is, actually, my spiritual life at that point was only just beginning. Jesus does not want a brief prayer of repentance one night. He wants our hearts lock, stock and barrel forever after. Salvation is like a bird or a plane. It's got two wings. One wing is the cross, and the other is the resurrection. Now, we're forgiven through Jesus' work on the cross. That's huge. But the resurrection, it's more than just a statement that we are completely forgiven. It's a gateway to a new post-sin existence. It's the first ray of light of a whole new dawn. Our gospel is the cross and the empty tomb. It's death and resurrection. It's forgiveness and hope. A get-out-of-jail-free card is not the full gospel. It fails the authenticity test. The watermark isn't there. The resurrection well, it points to a destination on the other side of judgment and justice. Yes, we are saved from our sin and from judgment, but we are saved to something as well as from something. We are saved to the hope of our own ultimate resurrection. 
And the last phrase, I think I said this last phrase before, but I lied. The last phrase I want to pull out is brothers and sisters. Now, like most New Testament teaching, this scripture is not directed at each of us individually. It's aimed at all of us collectively, which is one of the biggest blind spots that we have as Western Christians. I met a Tongan minister a little while ago, great guy. I asked him as we got chatting, you know, when did you decide to go off to be seminary and to be a minister? And he told me he'd never made that decision. His village made it for him. Now, I would struggle with that, as I'm sure many of us would too. But there's great strength in it, as I've reflected on it. We are called to be a people of both the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we can help each other live into that identity. One of you popped in to see me the other day to see me how this no-in-person church for two months had been as they thought I might be struggling with it. Good call. I had been. And I was really grateful for that concern. The Christian gospel is about God saving a people not some individual persons. We need to lean into each other more than we do, to draw strength from each other as we walk together through life under the Lordship of Jesus. Amen. Now I'm going to pause myself and ask the musicians if you'd come up for the final song.